Welcome to The Important Part, Investing with Liz Young. I'm Liz Young, Head of Investment Strategy at SoFi, here to help cut through the large amount of information out there about investing and get to the important part. With the help of my guests, you'll gain valuable insights, new perspectives, and the knowledge to confidently make your investment decisions. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Important Part. I'm going to start this episode with a little bit of a story. If you remember, my outlook for 2022 was titled Running Into the Wind. So it just so happens yesterday was one of the days that I went for a run outside, as I do quite often. And as I was walking onto the area where I normally do my longer runs, I was looking down at my phone and and trying to get kind of ready to get going. And I missed a little lip in the pavement. I tripped on it and fell flat on my face, (laughs) about as hard as one could fall from a standing position. And aside from my embarrassment and and the couple people that stopped to make sure that I was okay, I got up, I brushed myself off, and I was determined to still do this run. So I started going. And everything hurt for the first probably five minutes. My knees hurt. My hands hurt. My left hand was bleeding. I'm wearing Band-Aids today. And one of my hips hurt. Everything was painful, but not stopping me. And I couldn't help but think that there was a lot of parallels to the way that I was thinking about 2022 and the way that I thought it would be for investors. And honestly, the way that it's gone already so far. So we got kind of hit right away with the idea of higher inflation, rate hikes, these worries about whether we were ever going to get out of COVID. And then we got hit again with a war between Russia and Ukraine. And now we've gotten hit with inflation that's still persistent. We've had oil price spikes. We've got a 7.9% CPI. We've got, at the time of this recording, a yield curve with a spread between the two-year and the 10-year that's 20 basis points, which is near inversion. And people get really nervous when we start to talk about yield curve inversion. So this is a year where we feel like we keep getting knocked down and we have to stand back up. But much like what I did yesterday and (laughs) still finished my run in pain and bleeding, I felt great about it afterwards. It hurt less afterwards. And was it the best run I've ever done? No. Was it the fastest? No. It was also windy outside. I was cold. I didn't want to do this. (laughs) I didn't enjoy most of it, but I still got it done. And I think that that is a good way to think about 2022 for the remainder of the year. And I I don't intend for this to be a full year outlook episode, but I just want to put some perspective around it because it does feel like there's so many things that have happened from a market perspective that have been negative. And the interesting part about that is that people got really bearish into this first Fed meeting and, and maybe rightfully so, but there wasn't a ton of confirmation in the activity of their bearishness. So you hear people talk about being bearish and you know how worried they were and we haven't seen the bottom yet and all of the things that we heard and, and read and, and across major news outlets. But things like the put-call ratio, which you want to see a lot of puts in the market when people are scared, hadn't spiked yet. Flows hadn't come out of equities in droves like we would have expected them to until just recently. You didn't see a lot of activity on the selling side, frankly. And, you know, one of the things that did shift was this mentality of, okay, when there was a dip, 
there weren't maybe as many dip buyers that came in. Or if they came in, they didn't stick around very long. And you started to see people sell the rips is what we would call it. So you might have seen a rally that started in the earlier parts of the trading day, but it faded as the day went on because people used it as an opportunity to lighten up in their positions. So what we actually have seen over the last couple of weeks is some more of that confirmation of bearishness. And this may sound counterintuitive, but that's a good thing. Because usually when things get to an extreme level of bearishness or an extreme level of negativity or an extreme level of fear, that's about when you can see a relaxation in that fear. And you might see a a little bounce in the market. Now, I want to be very clear. I know I just said bounce in the market. I'm not saying that we bounce and we go straight up from here for the rest of the year. I absolutely do not think that's going to happen. I think that this is going to continue to be a year where we trip on the pavement and we may end up with some scrapes and bruises. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that it's a year where we should run for the hills. It doesn't mean that you pull the ripcord and decide that everything's over. This is simply a year where we may look back on it and think that it's a transition in the market. It's a transition from certain types of monetary policy that were very stimulative to more restrictive because we have an inflation problem and that's okay. I happen to think that the Fed is doing the right thing by tackling inflation, regardless of what it's doing to the market right now, and regardless of the growth fears that it might bring. Inflation is a really important issue. And if we don't tackle inflation, that itself will break the economy and the market. So it needs to be controlled. And I think they're doing the right thing. It's not going to be pretty along the way. So what I would say to investors here is you have an opportunity this year to Watch an environment unfold and watch asset classes behave, perhaps in ways that you haven't been able to see before. And this is a year, I continue to say this, where you can't buy broad market beta and expect it to work. We have to be more specific. We have to be specific about the sectors that might do well. And and what I mean by that is going into a rate hike Usually you see things like cyclical sectors do well, which is what we saw. Value is still leading for the year. And then after the hike, and this can take months, this can take three, six, nine, 12 months. But after the hike, you typically see those growth sectors that probably got hit really hard beforehand stabilize. Now, key word being stabilize. I'm not saying that they're going to suddenly take off and have this rip-roaring rally through the end of 2022. But there is an opportunity for a little more stability now that we've gotten the hiking cycle started. So I'm hopeful that we won't see as volatile of a second half as we do in the first half. And, you know, honestly, this is also a year where if we're down 11% on the S&P as of this recording year to date, I'd be happy if we ended in positive territory. I do think that we can make a good portion of this up But I would reset your expectations and not think that we're going to see another year like we did last year, the year before with 20, 25, 30% returns. I think that we just have a few more headwinds this year than we've had for a while. So hang on to your seats, but stay calm. And in an inflationary environment and an environment where we still have a decently strong economy, equities have an attractive risk reward. So in a time when we're worried about inflation and the headwinds about inflation and what we should do in our portfolios, this is another great opportunity to have an episode about crypto and digital assets. 
So I've brought Meltem Demirers on, and I can't think of anybody better to cover this topic than her. Meltem is Chief Strategy Officer at CoinShares, a digital asset investment firm that manages $4 billion in assets on behalf of a global client base and serves as a trusted partner to investors and entrepreneurs navigating the digital asset ecosystem. Prior to joining CoinShares, Meltem helped build and grow Digital Currency Group, raising capital from the world's largest corporations and managing a portfolio of 120 companies and four subsidiaries. Before she was bitten by the Bitcoin bug, Meltem worked in the oil and gas industry in trading, corporate treasury, and M&A roles. Meltem has been recognized for her personal contributions to the industry and serves as an outspoken advocate. She is a founding member and co-chair of the World Economic Forum Cryptocurrency Council and testified before the House Financial Services Committee on the importance of Bitcoin. Meltem teaches at her alma mater, MIT, as well as Oxford, and is passionate about privacy and civil rights. And with that, let's get to the interview. Meltem, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. I have heard so many wonderful things about you. You're all over the crypto world. So when I wanted to do my next crypto episode, you were the first person that came to mind. Uh, well, don't believe any of it. <laughs> <laughs> lies, all lies. Well, we'll all see. Lies. We'll see how it goes, I guess. I'm sure that everybody listening is really excited to hear what you have to say. But let's just honestly start from the beginning. You joined the crypto world back in 2015, which in my opinion was pretty early adoption at that point. How is it different today than it was back then? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So um, when I joined the crypto world, it was just Bitcoin. So that's big difference. Number one, mm -hmm. in 2015, I was leaving grad school. I'd spent my early career in the oil and gas industry, working in a variety of different functions, M&A, but also corporate treasury. I started my career on the trading side of the business. You know, I, I went to grad school at MIT. There was a lot of stuff happening with Bitcoin on campus at MIT. If you recall in 2013, 2014, that's also when fintech started becoming a big theme in venture capital. Um, you know, back in the day when I opened a brokerage account, unlike so many of your listeners, I had to go to Charles Schwab bank branch with, with my mom in person. You had to fill out like pages and pages of documents. You had to bring paper documents with you. Um, now opening a brokerage account, you can do it on your phone, a couple taps of a button. It's super easy. And so I think there are sort of two things that converged for me. One was the realization that everything I'd done in my life in the, in the finance space was about to change dramatically as a result of digitization and changes in distribution of product instead of going through intermediaries and financial advisors and sort of the ivory halls and the marble halls of, of Wall Street and existing financial institutions, people were going to be using their, their smartphones. And at that point, like the iPhone was still pretty new. And then number two was, you know, the more I got into Bitcoin, sort of this realization that um, not only were we seeing a massive shift in how people were consuming financial products and services, particularly my peers and, you know, younger generations, but also my, my parents, frankly. But the second realization was that the power in our world was changing. And my family's from Turkey. I grew up in the Netherlands, traveled a lot, lived in a lot of different places around the world. So I had the opportunity to sort of experience firsthand what the financial system feels like for people outside of America. And it's, it's not great. And so even on the internet, right, I'm a child of the internet, transacting with people online is, is super painful. So the idea of Bitcoin as an internet native currency that was non-sovereign, but also could settle with finality, 
with within minutes was super exciting to me. Um, I was like, you know what? What's the worst thing that could happen? Nobody wanted to invest in our company. Nobody wanted to give us money. Everyone thought I was crazy. For years and years, I would go to events. And people were like, oh, crazy Bitcoin lady. Don't talk to her. She's going to talk yeah. to you about Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. And now, you know, we sort of crossed the, the Rubicon, like Bitcoin, crypto generally is part of the cultural zeitgeist now with NFTs, you know, it's very accessible. I think it's very easy for people to understand what we're doing in my little corner of the universe. And so it really over the last eight years has just changed so profoundly. I'm really happy that the risk I took like paid off. <laughs> paid yeah, off. well, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think my family and friends were like, I'm sorry, why are you doing this with your yeah. life? Like, could we not? But it all worked out. So yeah, yay. <laughs> you know, but sometimes those things that feel the craziest at the moment, are the best ideas. But it didn't feel crazy, Liz. It was so logical. Honestly, it was so logical. Yeah. Well, you were just way ahead of the rest of us. It felt crazy to the rest of us that we're still moving at a snail's pace through those mahogany walls. And I'm I'm very familiar. But even in the last year for me, I mean, joining SoFi, I had to get on that train too and say, you know what? The world is changing. The market is changing. Investors are changing this next generation is here. We kept getting warned about it for so long. There was this next generation that was coming along and now they're here and they're making noise and you have to listen. So I applaud you for being earlier on it. So I think usually when I'm talking to new investors or I'm trying to help new investors understand the thesis behind this, I ask, you know, why, why would you buy crypto? I'm going to ask this a little different way to you because you're so ingrained in the crypto world. When you think about those investors that have been in this as long as you have, and even yourself, what is their reason for being so enthusiastic about investing in the space? I think the easiest way to articulate it is something that comes up a lot with more traditional investors, perhaps you know value investors who follow Benjamin Graham-style methodology where they look at cash flow, they look at ratios. Cryptocurrencies are not companies. They resemble more uh, commodities, right? So being an oil and gas person, when I saw Bitcoin, I got it right away because the idea of supply and and demand and trying to match those two and understand where that leaves price was like a, a really intuitive concept. You know, I think for a lot of investors looking at the world today, our portfolios aren't going to look the way they've looked in the past. The idea of the 64-40 portfolio is dead, right? You know, real interest rates are negative 5% right now. Like US Treasury is what? Yielding 2%, inflation 7%. So 7 minus 2 on the yields, negative 5. That's not attractive. You're losing 5% of your purchasing power every year. So we need to look at the world differently. And I think it started really with endowments and institutions who had the ability to be a little bit more risk-taking with family offices who are planning, you know, generational wealth for for their founders and people, individual investors. That's really where investing in crypto started. And now it's sort of permeated its way down and we're seeing more and more participation at all levels. But really the core concept is we're looking for asymmetrical risk reward, right? And this is what we talk about all the time at CoinShares. We manage $6 billion in assets across a variety of different product families, we're on the trading side as, as well. We're market maker. We always talk about with our clients, people who are looking to invest is this is about an asymmetrical risk reward opportunity. This is a nascent, nascent technology. It's going to grow. But within that sort of secular long-term growth trend, there are going to be cycles. And those cycles are volatile, right? So the cyclicality of crypto, I think, is something just be really aware of as an investor. It's nerve-wracking for some people. 
what what does that mean to you? What is the cyclicality of crypto? Does it follow economic cycles in your mind? Does it follow market cycles? Is it completely counter cyclical? We don't have enough data to be completely candid to know definitively. Bitcoin is about 12 years old as an asset. Bitcoin follows four-year cycles that are based on its supply schedule. Every four years, the emission of Bitcoin from mining, right, the creation of new Bitcoin is cut in half. 85% of Bitcoin that will ever exist have already been mined. And so Bitcoin typically operates on a four-year market cycle around these halvings. Each halving, what we typically see is, you know, this the cyclical pattern where going up to the halving, we see price acceleration. After the halving, we see an 18-month price drop and then another rally to a new high. Bitcoin has historically over the last three cycles, three halvings followed that pattern. Again, very early in its life cycle. Other assets like Ethereum, right? Ethereum has been around for about five years. So the amount of data we have here is significantly less. It was very difficult. Like we look at correlations all the time. For a while, Bitcoin was not correlated with anything. So this is a great portfolio diversifier. Over the last several months, Bitcoin has been quite correlated with tech equities right, with growth stocks. So that's been interesting, but that trend's only a couple months old. Now we're seeing crypto correlating a bit with macro, although in the last week or so, that trend sort of dropped off. So again, it's just difficult to make definitive conclusions about what factors, what macro factors in particular are driving crypto when we have so little time scale data to, to look at. But again, what I always talk to about investors is this is an asymmetrical risk reward opportunity. If you believe that the future of the world is digital, online, decentralized, right, computation and, and energy driven, then you believe in, in crypto. And so allocating one to 5% of your portfolio to something that has such asymmetric upside, if you're comfortable with that risk, is not necessarily a bad bet to make. And again, if we look at the slate of options available today, there aren't a lot of effective diversifiers that exhibit those asymmetrical risk reward opportunities for investors. Yeah, and that's that's a really frustrating place to be for investors. And and as somebody who talks to investors every day, it's you know the question is what's the solution? Um, and given that this solution is so new, it's tough to set those expectations, like you said. And despite the fact that you just said you don't have enough data to really determine what the trends are and determine what the patterns are, I'm still going to ask about a macro uh, effect. Obviously, there's a lot of geopolitical risk and un- unrest that's going on in the world today. Do you think that this war between Russia and Ukraine was a pivotal moment in crypto's life? Or is it an event that we'll look back on as an event that passed? I think it's part of a continuation of a series of events that have unfolded over the last 18 months. I think it started really at the start of actually 24 months, pardon me. It started at the beginning of the pandemic when Paul Tudor Jones, one of the world's most respected investors and just like a a great macro mind that so many people in particular, so many institutions listen to and follow. In March of 2020, Paul Tudor Jones came out and said, you know, my job is betting on the best horse. Bitcoin is the best horse. That was a game changer for the industry because all of a sudden the asset class is taken seriously. Throughout 2020, a number of different investors of all types came out and voiced their support for Bitcoin, revealed that they had Bitcoin in their personal portfolios and expressed their intention to add Bitcoin to their portfolios and their funds. So that was sort of 2020. Then 2021 came along. El Salvador made Bitcoin their legal tender, right? And Mm -hmm. sort of announced their plans to raise sovereign debt, not 
with strings attached from the IMF or the World Bank, but they said, hey, we're going to do this new thing. We're going to raise money directly, right? Change in distribution, raise money directly from the market using this Bitcoin-backed bond, which was really interesting. So that was the first nation state to really adopt and embrace Bitcoin. We saw, obviously, cities like Miami, the state of Texas, starting to embrace Bitcoin, Wyoming developing laws around um, crypto, in particular DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, which are new ways of structuring companies and, and collectives. And then, really, the tipping point, I think, wasn't necessarily just Ukraine. It was the Canadian trucker protests, right? When we saw, for the first time in the Western world, what financial censorship looked like. And I think it wasn't really until that moment that people realized what's coming next. What's coming next, what our government is going to do to our relationship with money, right? They're going to take away all physical forms of value and replace them with digital forms of value that they control. So instead of having to find you and, and take your cash from you, it's as simple as flipping a switch and saying, hey, we don't like what Liz is saying on social media. We're going to flip a switch and she's no longer going to have access to any financial services, no banking, no ability to spend money, no ability to earn money. You're just going to be completely cut off from the financial system, which effectively means exile, right? You can't live. And so I think that was sort of step one that really people in the Western world, particularly in North America, we'd never seen that from a government before. So I think it really woke people up to the reality of like what a central bank digital currency or digital dollar looks like. It's not good, right? Then along came Russia-Ukraine conflict. And I think again there, we saw cries from people to full scale, you know, sanction all Russians just by virtue of living in a country where the person in, in charge there who is in all affects, you know, a, a dictator, just because this person has chosen a, a specific stance, like to, to punish an entire country of people, which has been the role of sanctions for a long time, you know, was was pretty insane. Like, so I think that also just made people really aware of some of the challenges that we see uh, emerging. And I think the last component is the fact that, you know, Ukraine, they got $300 million of aid from the United States, around 200 million from the EU, and about 50 million from the crypto community. So while in comparison, it's not a massive amount. The fact that they could raise money immediately online with like very little overhead and have it go directly to funding their war efforts is pretty astounding. And it's not coming from a nation state. It's not coming from a government. It's coming from a community of people who share some of the values. So I think it's a number of different factors that are all coming together. And I think 2022 is not over yet. There's going to be more insanity this year. I thought this year would be chill. It's clearly not going to be. I wish. Well, and one of the most maybe overused phrases that we all sort of poke fun at is it's different this time. But in reality, if this is a new asset class that now has had so much adoption, especially by retail users, retail investors, it really is different this time, right? I mean, that's given us just a different tool to think about. One of the topics that's gotten a lot of attention lately is the fact that mining crypto is supposedly dirty. And it does use a lot of energy and that it leaves a carbon footprint. And obviously, in today's world, when we talk about ESG investing, socially responsible investing, saving the planet and, and just being more conscious of all that. That's some of the pushback that people give of, you know, don't invest in crypto because it's actually hurting the world more than helping it. What's your stance on that? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting narrative. And honestly, we've been hearing this narrative since 2015, Bitcoin's going to boil the oceans. I was just revisiting a headline from 2017 that said by 2020, Bitcoin will use all the energy on the planet. Like, 
Bitcoin today. So we research this every year. Uh, we publish Bitcoin mining report. You can do it on our website, coinshares.com. If you don't believe us, the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance, which is part of Cambridge University, publishes a very similar report that corroborates our numbers. Today, Bitcoin uses 0.05% of the energy in the world. 0.05%. In fact, clothes dryers use more energy than the Bitcoin network. I think one of the really interesting arts, so I'll just give people a few facts and then I want to let people draw their own conclusions. So number one, what I'll say is this, is Bitcoin mining today. So if we look at the energy mix in the United States, the grid is about 19% renewable energy. The crypto industry in North America, based on the last report from the North American Mining Council, which tracks miners in all of North America, there's a lot in Canada and in, in the US, they're using about 56% renewable energy. So already Bitcoin mining in North America is about three times greener than the overall energy grid. Definitely greener than the data center industry, right? Data centers consume way more power. Like people listening to this podcast, people being on Twitter, people watching Netflix, that consumes a lot of power. So number one is Bitcoin as an industry is very green. Your only cost input to mine Bitcoin is number one, your CapEx, which is the cost of the semiconductors, specialized chips you use, and two, your cost of energy. So as a Bitcoin miner, the way you optimize profit is to use the lowest cost energy possible. Now, when a lot of Bitcoin mining is still happening in China, all of that mining was done with hydropower. So hydropower in the Shenzhen region of China during the rainy season, very abundant, not being used for anything. So people would buy Bitcoin with it. And at that point in time, Bitcoin was done with 78% renewable power. Now it's a little lower because mining has relocated to different parts of the world, in particular Kazakhstan, where they're using a lot of oil and fossil fuels to mine. But in North America in particular, it's quite green. Number two is this. We seem to have this really interesting like psychological issue with crypto. I think a lot of people who don't like cryptocurrency and don't want it to exist have pushed this narrative that crypto, especially Bitcoin, pollutes the environment, when in fact, like it's, it doesn't really, not more so than any other industries. And I think the conversation we're having here is about uses of energy. There is no energy police. No one comes to your house and says, you can't play that game. You can't run your AC. You can't use your clothes dryer. There is no energy police. There's never been energy police. And if there is energy police, like Bitcoin's going to be very low on the, on the list of energy users. What I think the bigger issue is, is we need to talk about sources of energy. In the United States, we've not put a single nuclear facility on the grid in years, right? The only facilities that are going online in the United States are combined cycle gas plants and more coal-fired plants. Same thing's happening in Europe, right? Why is Germany having an energy crisis? Because they've decommissioned all of their nuclear facilities and they're wholly dependent on fossil fuels. So you can say that you care about the environment, ESG and all of this, but if the policies you're pursuing are in direct conflict with putting low carbon sources of abundant, really dense energy on the grid, you have to ask at some point, like, what are we doing here? So what I like to focus on is how do we put more renewables, more nuclear on the grid in the United States without having to rely on our government, as we see by the situation we're in now, right? We're like, we're really not doing anything about Russia because we're not importer of energy. So I think the answer is this, and this is really exciting. Bitcoin can actually help green the grid. And here's how. Bitcoin miners will actually pay to develop renewable energy facilities. And a company called Grid actually put a new hydroelectric facility on the grid just to do this. And instead of relying on tax subsidies or government incentives or taxpayer dollars to do it, 
we're going to use the profit generated by Bitcoin mining to pay for this renewable energy source. And so I think there's actually really fascinating and beautiful relationship between Bitcoin and energy in that Bitcoin effectively can be a quote unquote money battery and that it can soak up excess renewable power generation in regions where there isn't a lot of natural industry, create monetary value, right, which can then be used by those communities. And we're seeing this happening in different parts of North America that are energy abundant, but far removed from end energy consumption markets. 40% of power is lost in transmission, right? So I do think there is an interesting opportunity here in a way to sort of shift the narrative. But again, we're only one firm. I'm only one person. I'm out here shouting this ton blue in the face. I come from the energy industry. I know how this works. I know how our grid works. But again, I would also question, you know, the people that are spreading this narrative, what is their objective and, you know, what what are they looking to achieve? But the data is out there. It's widely available. And again, I think the ESG concerns around crypto are widely overblown and often misreported and just completely wildly inaccurate. Very much a clutch the pearl situation. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we found your passion button. That's for sure. <laughs> I, I just get crazy because I'm a I'm a data driven person. Like the data's there. The data is yeah. there. It's yeah. widely available. It's just that we focus on such a very small thing that's in con- like 300 million people use the Bitcoin network, right? So people are always like, "Oh, Bitcoin uses more power than the the country of Finland." Yeah, like. 2 million people live in Finland. No offense to the, the Finns, maybe 10 million, right? 300 million people are using Bitcoin. So how do you value financial sovereignty for hundreds of millions of people? It's a very subjective and difficult to answer question. But I mean, that's that's how you try to make decisions. You have to use facts. You have to use data to make decisions. So I appreciate you bringing forth all the stuff that probably a lot of people don't realize and and don't know how to find it. And now they do. So I think it's great. And, and I appreciate the passion as well. All right, let's talk about another sort of challenge or possible challenge. And, but I've heard two schools of thought on this, on regulation, because it feels like it's imminent, right? There's regulation coming. The first school of thought is that regulation is actually good for the industry because it further legitimatizes it as an asset class and as a financial instrument. The other school of thought is that regulation is going to stifle it and limit the amount of opportunity. What say you, I guess, about those two options? Yeah, this is a great question. And honestly, the lack of regulatory clarity in the United States has made it really difficult to operate a crypto business in the in the United States. I'll start by saying this. The role of regulation, believe it or not, is not to pick winners and losers. It's not a political bargaining chip. The role of regulation is to establish clear and consistent guidelines and then to apply those guidelines fairly and evenly. That's not the way we regulate financial markets in America. <laughs> FYI, the policy we use in America is, is regulation by enforcement. And that's not a f- sensible policy, nor is it a policy that really benefits anyone. And it, this is not a problem, by the way, that's only unique to crypto. We see this in the fintech sector, right? Like anytime there's any sort of innovation in fintech, response number one from the government is like, let's sue someone, let's issue an order of some type, let's like mess with someone. Um, And we saw this with Robinhood, like pay for order flow has been around for ages, right? You see one firm getting singled out. And again, I'm not taking sides here. I just think the banking sector is like egregiously flawed. But on the regulatory front, I think, again, the inconsistency in how policy is A set and then B enforced has definitely been frustrating. At the end of the day, crypto companies spend a ton of time and energy and fintech companies broadly, like SoFi, I'm sure, spends a ton of time and money, compliance, regulation, like really going above and beyond because it's difficult to do something new and to not have a lot of clear guidance. 
The second thing I'll say is at this point, there's not really a whole lot that can be done to stop crypto. 22% of American adults own Bitcoin. 30% of American adults own crypto or cryptocurrency of, of some type. And those numbers are from a study that was done by NYDIG and Newsweek uh, last and Fidelity last year. Um, if you Google it, you'll you'll find it. People want crypto. P- people have spoken, millennials in particular, my generation, we want crypto. I heard a crazy statistic from Tom Lee at Fundstrat. Last year, 20% of new home purchases, the down payment was paid for with crypto gains. Wow. So that's a pretty crazy number, but also it's highlighting again that asymmetrical risk reward opportunity. Crypto is one of the few asset classes that is broadly accessible to any and all investors, right? Unlike so many other asset classes where access is predicated based on like your firm's size or status is not available to, to everyday people. So I do think in terms of opportunity, Americans have spoken and they want the opportunity to engage with crypto, to trade it, to participate in it. They're aware of its speculative nature. I don't think anyone who's buying, you know, dog coins is of the belief that they're not going to potentially lose all their money, right? But again, yeah, like, that it's a defensive asset that pays a dividend or something. Yeah, 100%. And then I think the last piece I'll add is this, like, at, at this point, it used to be the view that institutions would help sort of get involved in crypto and help lead to crypto mass adoption. That's out the window now. Crypto firms are larger than financial institutions. Coinbase, right, is most popular crypto exchange in America. If you look at assets under custody, by the measure of assets under custody, they would be the sixth largest financial institution in America. Wow. So JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, financial institutions are not going to acquire crypto companies. Crypto companies have become their own de facto institutions. And the space is no longer looking to the financial services industry to legitimize it or help accelerate its growth. We're doing that internally. And I actually think the more likely outcome is that crypto (laughs) companies end up acquiring fintechs and legacy financial institutions and utilizing them for their licenses and their regulatory status. Plot twist. That would be wild. Right. That's already happening. It's it's happening. Yeah. All right. So last thing I want to close on, and this is this is a space that I don't fully understand myself, I admit. Let's talk about stores of value. Obviously, we think about crypto as one of the stores of value, one of the newer stores of value, but also NFTs and the idea of NFTs as a store of value, especially in an environment like this. Help our listeners wrap their heads around NFTs as not only something that we use as an art piece, but something that is a store of value and why you're interested in it in it personally? Look, I think store of value is, um, is also quite sub- subjective, right? People use real estate as store of value. People use fine art as a store of value. Russian oligarchs use yachts and private jets as a store of, of value. I think it's a little bit subjective depending on what your objective is. But I think wealth preservation in the face of, and when I say wealth preservation, it's really purchasing power preservation in the face of unprecedented monetary debasement, right? 40% of all dollars in existence printed in the last 24 months. The real interest rate's negative 5%. Like, what do you do in this environment? You look for assets that will hold their value over time and allow you to retain your purchasing power parity. So I think crypto definitely for some people fits into that bucket. Although again, you know, we're still looking at the data. So trying to understand correlations, macro factors, and whether or not that trend persists over a longer duration of time, just because the data we have is is not that long of a duration to allow us to declare anything definitively. I think 
correlation, causation, you know, we want to take some time and untangle those two. But I do think with NFTs in particular, NFTs sort of resemble the fine art market in my view, where there's like a handful of artists whose work has retained value over time. And then there's going to be a ton of art. It's very hypey. It's very bubbly. And a lot of the crap out there is not going to retain its value over time, right? There's like thousands of derivatives of like Bored Ape Yacht Club or Punks. Like those collections are the blue chips that retain their value over the long term. And there's probably 30 or 40 collections that I think will have real long-term value and will have you know, cultural value. And then everything else I think is going to be small sort of loyal communities sort of die out over time and move on to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. So um, I don't know if I would necessarily view NFTs like a great store value for the everyday investor, just because from a portfolio diversification perspective, it's really difficult to pick the right collections. Unless you have specialized knowledge, I think it's very difficult to buy like a portfolio of NFTs that will hold its value over time. But we are starting to see in the NFT space through the financialization of NFTs, um, new financial products emerging, new arbitrage strategies, um, new sort of directional strategies that that hopefully you can productize and offer to investors of all types, including retail investors in, in new ways. But I think for the time being, like NFTs are quite specific to the people who collect them and the people who have the ability to sort of spot and sort of determine which ones will have value over time. I think for now, what I advise mo- most people to do is like, you're going to likely do better buying a diversified basket of, of cryptocurrencies over a longer duration. But again, you know, if you want to spend the time on NFTs, there's certainly a plethora of information out there, a huge community out there that's uh, congregating on Twitter and Discord. And we personally at, at CoinShares haven't invested in NFTs from our balance sheet yet. We might at some point, but if and when we do, we'll do it in the way we make any investment. It'll be data-driven, it'll be research-driven, it'll be thematic and have a, a strategy that's supported by market fundamentals. Got it. Got it. So still new, still learning. But you know, the thing that that I think helps everybody realize that some of the stuff isn't going anywhere is the community, like you mentioned, the community that's around it. And the community just continues to grow and bring in people that maybe you didn't expect to ever be in that community. And I think that's a really cool thing that's happened over the last couple of years. Well, Meltzum, thank you. I found this fascinating. I wish I could have you back every month, honestly. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think our listeners are going to love this. And that's a wrap for today. I think that's all we can give them for knowledge for today. But I really appreciate your time and I love your work. And I think everybody should be following you closely. Oh, thank you so much, Liz. Thanks for having me. And if folks want to learn more, um, feel free to follow me on Twitter. I share a lot of memes, a lot of garbage and some useful insights. So hopefully the ratio of useful to just straight up trash is is a good one. (laughs) Everybody needs a little trash once in a while. (laughs) I like to laugh. You know, the world's a very serious place. Sometimes I need a lull. I need a good lull. Same, same. (laughs) I'm only human, Liz. (laughs) I agree. I absolutely agree. Okay, so some key takeaways from that interview, at least the things that really stuck with me, first and foremost, thinking about just the pervasiveness of crypto in society today and how many not only retail investors, but institutional investors, well-respected investors. She mentioned Paul Tudor Jones about how he mentioned Bitcoin and crypto as something to pay attention to. The pervasiveness of this asset class and the usage of it today is really astonishing. And we've gotten to a point where 
the education is now at a different level. We no longer have to tell people what is it, what how do you how do you buy it, right? I think there's a lot of people that understand much more about it than they did before. And and her stat on 22% of American adults owning Bitcoin was also pretty surprising to me. Secondly, the historical data. You know, we have the luxury in a lot of different asset classes when we talk about the market of looking backward 50 years, 60 years, back to the Great Depression in many of them and analyzing their behavior over so many different market cycles. And, and that really is a luxury because then we can set expectations. We can analyze all different aspects of the environment and how certain asset classes behaved in that environment. We don't have that for crypto. And that's where we still are in this process. So despite the fact that it's been adopted widely, we don't have the data historically like we do for most other asset classes. So we're still figuring that out. And over time, obviously, we will compile that data. But this is a learning process for everybody. And, and that's also what keeps it in the price discovery phase. And then lastly, the conversation, and, and she got so passionate about this, and I loved it, the conversation around the carbon footprint of crypto. And there's been a decent amount of pushback lately about crypto mining being dirty and being bad for the environment. And she had some really interesting stats about you know, how that's not actually as bad as what people have led us to believe, or maybe as bad as some of the headlines have suggested. So I really found a lot of this fascinating. I hope that it touched on some topics that you don't hear about quite as often. And we got deeper into some of those topics to keep it interesting and keep it unique. So I loved it. Thank you for listening. Can't wait to bring you the next episode soon. For more from me, check out my weekly column on the markets and economy every Thursday morning on the SoFi blog at SoFi.com slash blog. And follow me on Twitter for daily takes on the market at Liz Youngstrap. The Important Part is produced by SoFi in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Sarah Lee Kane, our producer, Brian Rivers, our production manager, and Jeff Emptman, our editor and sound engineer. SoFi can't guarantee future financial performance and past performance is no guarantee. This podcast should be used for informational purposes only and not deemed as a recommendation. Our automated investing is via SoFi Wealth, LLC, and is a registered investment advisor. Our active investing is via SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. For additional disclosures related to the SoFi Invest platforms, please visit sofi.com legal.